Hello and welcome to the BMJ Leader podcast. My name is Dr. James Mountford. I'm Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Leader, as well as Director of Quality at the Royal Free London NHS Foundation Trust. So each issue of BMJ Leader is accompanied by a brief podcast where we ask leaders from across health and care to comment on interesting material in the journal. And in this episode, we're going to talk to Roger Klein about a paper he wrote recently entitled Leadership in the NHS. Roger's research fellow at Middlesex University, past uh, director and trustee of Patients First UK, and was previously at the lead for the race equality standard with a background in trade union movement and negotiation. So Roger, it's really great to see you and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. So I'm currently a research fellow at Middlesex University Business School um, and what I'm interested in is workplace culture and in particular some of the challenges that get in the way of staff being as effective and safe as they can be. So I'm interested in bullying, discrimination, particularly race discrimination, inappropriate use of disciplinary action and, and a blame culture, and whistleblowing. So I, I've written about all of them. Um, and obviously they, they overlap both in terms of what causes them uh, and how one might mitigate or uh, re- reduce them. Thank you. So we'll pick up on a lot of that in the discussion that follows. So the piece that you wrote for BMJ Leader uh, has got a number of of powerful points. So what would you say are the main messages in that article? Well, the health service at the moment is in a very difficult place. Not enough staff, not enough resources. But there are some things that it is possible to do which will improve how patients are cared for how staff are retained and how organisations can be as effective as possible. So staff are both the biggest cost and the biggest asset potentially to the health service and we know from research that staff currently in the NHS are not treated as well as they can, they're not mobilised as well as they could be and that leadership can be decisive in improving both of those factors. So I think leadership and particularly how leadership treats staff is something that is very important and we do know from research what sorts of leadership are more likely to be effective uh, than others so the piece I wrote for BMJ Leader touches on some of those issues and it particularly draws quite heavily on on a big body of research around that. Okay so given all the pressures on the NHS some people might say that some of what you're suggesting is a bit of a luxury or a nice to have. How would you respond to that? This stuff is not fluffy. This is essential. We know from the research and we know from practical examples within the NHS and indeed in other healthcare systems that getting this stuff right is not an extra burden on senior leaders. It's a way of making their work better, easier, and safer. If you look at the data on how staff are treated, when a quarter, 24% of NHS staff say that they were bullied or harassed last year, large numbers of staff say they are stressed at work. We know we have significant challenges around discrimination, very steep uh, ethnicity gradient, a very significant gender pay gap. We are not mobilising 
the talent of staff in the way that we should do. If we were to treat staff with more respect, better listen to them, tackle bullying, for example. We know from research that bullying makes it less likely that staff will raise concerns, less likely they will admit mistakes, and less likely they will work in effective teams. Michael West suggests that up to 50% of the teams in the NHS are not really teams, they're pseudo-teams, as he calls them. So if we can tackle those sorts of issues, we know from other evidence it can make a big difference to the outcomes, uh, both for organisations, for staff, and most importantly for patients. Okay, so healthcare is a people business, and this is central to getting the people proposition uh, right. Absolutely. So it's you know, clearly, if there are not enough staff to go around, which there aren't at the moment, that makes that harder. But there are enough evidence of trusts that, despite that, have managed remarkable improvements in the way that they provide care. The question is, why aren't other organisations doing it? Okay. On that note, perhaps you're quite critical of NHS HR in the piece. Why is that? Well, what I found surprising, what I find surprising, is that most of the things that are being done in the health service around bullying, around whistleblowing, around discipline and around discrimination are simply not underpinned by evidence. If we had an outbreak of MRSA on a ward, we would expect the trust would look at the research evidence, would talk to staff, talk to patients, find other organisations that had similar problems and work out how to adapt what they had done to their own organisation. As far as workforce culture is concerned, nobody seems to ask whether what we are doing is likely to work. So if I give a simple example, on discrimination, we put a lot of emphasis on diversity training and unconscious bias training, but the research evidence suggests that both of those are highly problematic. Not that they're useless, but that the extent to which they can change decisions is grossly inflated. And yet we invest very heavily in them at the expense of other interventions that might work. So we have a mixture of denial. Um, The NHS tends to look for comfort in information rather than difficult information. We find some of these issues, bullying and race discrimination, for example, very difficult to talk about. Um, But above all else, we don't see tackling workforce culture as a matter of improvement, we tend to see it as compliance. So we have top-down management, which we know from research is the least effective way of managing, and we have organisations that are more concerned about compliance than they are about seeing these things as ways of improving the way they provide care. So that's fascinating. That perhaps plays to a more general um, cultural trend in health services around the world to move away from compliance and enforcement uh, towards enabling and improvement. So let's look ahead, uh, Roger. Um, We want to uh, promote action that's going to accelerate positive change on this. So what do you suggest that uh, different actors in the system might do? Could we start with boards, leadership entities of of institutions? I would suggest that before we start with the who is to do what, we need to agree what's the destination. Sometimes with workforce culture, I feel that people behave as if they are going into the London underground with a map of the Paris metro. We need to be clear 
But where we want to be is in organisations with high levels of inclusion and staff engagement, where it's psychologically safe for people to raise concerns and admit mistakes, where people can bring themselves to work and are valued and respected in what they do. So inclusion is a shorthand for that. Once we're clear that that's the direction we want to move in, we can think about what sorts of behaviours and what sorts of actions. So for boards, there are three or four things. The first thing is to understand the narrative. What's the evidence why we want to do this? We're not doing it because it's a good thing. We're doing it because it will make patient care better. It will make the organisation more effective. It will improve staff health and well-being. The second thing is we need to understand our data. Um, Organisations tend to look away from difficult data. We have a multitude of effective data in the NHS. We don't often use it around workforce issues. So that will tell us where the problem is. It won't tell us what the problem is. The third thing is to then look at what sorts of interventions are more likely to be effective. So you can look at bullying or disciplinary action or bias in recruitment. There are different interventions for each of those challenges, but they're all characterized by a need to pay granular attention to the ways in which bias creeps in and a need to find ways of inserting accountability. Sometimes that accountability will be very direct. Often it can be quite indirect, a form of sort of behavioral nudge where you you set expectations, but you encourage people to find their own ways of doing it. But the board needs to model all those behaviors. Unless the board in its own behaviors understands the narrative, understands the data, and models the behaviors it expects of others, it can't expect frontline managers to do the things it wants them to do. So once we know that, we can then work out for each particular challenge what we want to do and what that means for leadership behaviours. So that's very clear. Could you give us a, a couple of examples of, of specific things you've seen boards collectively or perhaps chief executives doing who've really got this right? One example is a lady called Sheila Marsh in Wigan was in her dying days and she was asked by a nurse, is there anybody else that you'd like to see? And she said, yes, I'd like to see Rosie. So nobody knew who Rosie was. They asked her relatives, and one of them said, Ah, Rosie is the last horse that Sheila looked after when she worked at Haydock Racecourse. The next day, the trust arranged for Rosie in a horse box to be delivered to the car park at Wigan Infirmary and for Sheila to be wheeled out in her bed. And they said, Sheila, Rosie is here. And she said, Rosie? At which point, Rosie trotted over, bent down, and kissed Sheila. And some of you will have seen this on social media. And what was remarkable about that was that the chief executive didn't organize that. He found out about it afterwards because he had delegated authority to staff he trusted to be able to do that without seeking his permission. Um, If you want perhaps another example, a more recent one, also actually in the Northwest, Mersey Care is a trust that three or four years ago was a very troubled organization, very high level of disciplinary issues, unhappy staff, bullying, and the leadership there took a view that it had to change. And they introduced what they called a a just culture. 
a just and learning culture where they're tempted to turn round what happened when something didn't go as planned, what we might call when things went wrong, so that when something didn't go as planned, the emphasis was not on who did it, but how do we prevent it happening again. And in a relatively short period of time, they have radically reduced the level of disciplinary action have saved the trust large amounts of money, a million pounds a year plus, and have started to radically change the culture within the organisation with a positive impact on turnover, absenteeism and so on. And that the evidence is a bit more tentative, improvements in patient care. So it is possible, even in challenged circumstances, to change the way that organisations are run, the way that staff are valued, and with implications for patient care. And, and it's not easy. Both those organisations will tell you this stuff is not easy. But it can be done if leaders understand where they want to get to. So two lovely examples. So, Roger, a lot of our readers uh, at BMJ Leader are senior uh, clinicians, doctors and, and other senior uh, clinical types and managers, not on the board but leading local units and teams. Uh, have you got any advice for them? I would recognise that it is very difficult. In the midst of staff shortages um, and growing demand to be able to stand back and change the ways in which things are done. But what was really a pleasant surprise to me as I've gone round trusts is the willingness of a significant proportion of leaders to want to change the way they are doing, particularly around the issue of, of replacing blame with learning. I think there is still a limited but an increasing understanding of the importance of diversity. I think one of the challenges is understanding that if you want to leverage the benefits of diversity, you have to move to inclusion. And what that means for leaders in their own behaviours, it means modelling what they expect of others. It means recognising that the most important person in the room, for example, is not the chief executive or the medical director or the clinical director, but is the person who knows what to do next, which might be a very junior member of staff. It's recognising that the way in which you tell if an organisation is safe and inclusive is by what the most junior people feel they're able to do. Some readers will be familiar with the famous Bob Vector example. How do you tell an effective and safe theatre team when the most junior nurse feels able to say to the most senior consultant, you didn't wash your hands, and the consultant says, oh, I'm sorry, and goes off and washes their hands, rather than saying, and who do you think you are? So for individual leaders, their behaviours really matter. Within teams, we have too many pseudo-teams. Good leaders try to build teams where there is mutual respect, where there is an acceptance and welcoming of difference, recognising that cognitive and demographic diversity, properly managed, uh, make for much better creativity innovation, safety, productivity, and staff engagement and respect. So we have a big research base that shows if you build inclusive teams, they make for better organizations, less turnover, lower absenteeism. And for organizations as a whole, inclusive leaders understand what Max Dupree said, that the key role for leaders is to polish and enable and liberate 
the skills of others. So they create the space in which others can do what they do best. If you like, they're like a conductor of the orchestra rather than trying to be the best instrumentalist. That's a lovely note to, uh, to finish on, Roger. Thank you very, very much for sharing your perspectives. To remind everyone that uh, Roger's paper, Leadership in the NHS, is open access, freely available on the BMJ Leader website, bmjleader.bmj.com. See you next time.